went straight down the middle. Then it started to Welcome to another edition of For the Good of the Game. And Bruce Devlin, when they coined the old adage, drive for show and putt for dough, could they have been thinking about our guest today? Well, a lot of people would say that. Uh, he's probably one of the greatest putters that ever played the game, but he also had a pretty good golf game as well. He wins two majors on the regular tour and three on the champions tour. Been a good friend of mine for a long time. Uh, I voted for him actually back in 1967 when he came on the scene at Colonial and won the tournament. So welcome, Dave Stockton. We're glad you're with us. Bruce, great being with you and Mike also. Uh, appreciate you guys reaching out to me and uh, not sure what kind of a story about me you can tell, but it, uh, it's been a marvelous run for Kathy and I uh, to leave California in the mid-60s and not being from the middle part of the country and starting driving. We leave we leave every year the first three years in February and not come back till October. And uh, it's kind of, as, as Bruce knows, our gypsy way of life. Our, our friends become all, our, all the people we play against, competed against on the tour. But, uh, yeah, I've gotten to go through life without having to work. So it, uh, it's been quite a ride. We don't see many gypsies today in, in cars driving around with their <laughs> wife and kids, do we? <laughs> Huh. Things have changed a little bit. Just a little bit. I can still see the Whartons driving down the Texas road with their their little dog. What did they they called it? Some small name, and all of a sudden, it, we could see they were like in a Volkswagen, a small car, and this gigantic dog that weighed 130 <laughs> pounds sitting between them. But uh, yeah, it it's a little different. They have a different way of traveling with the private jets and everything else. But uh, you know, they make enough money now they can pay for that and. Uh, I think we, we wouldn't trade anything we had. No. I mean, we, we, we did a lot of, we bonded a lot because we had to with little, little pods of people going town to town. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've had a chance to hear from a lot of our guests about those same on-the-road stories, and I'm sure we'll get to a few of those because life was different. Maybe we just start, Dave, uh, just at the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about growing up in California, how you came to uh, find the, the, the game of golf and some of those types of things. Well, um, my dad was a really good player. Uh, he uh, was an All-American at USC and uh, won the Pac-8, Pac I think, back then. In fact, my dad and I were the first father-son to win and become All-Americans in the same sport at USC. Uh, but I, I liked playing baseball and basketball. And when I was younger, our go my dad was a pro at the club, and the, and the mowers would mow our backyard. I mean, we were right on the golf course. But uh, golf was not my most popular sport at that point in time because you could run out in the backyard and play baseball or basketball or football or something. And it wasn't until I hurt my back when I was 15 that I seriously decided I, the only way I was going to be able to get a college scholarship was to play golf because I, you know, I had a vertical leap of about three inches and uh, <laughs> basketball and, and baseball. If the ball was sit on the ground, I had a hard time getting down to it because I wasn't fleet of foot or, you know, in great shape, but, uh, so at 15, I started practicing, but during that, from the time I was 13 on until I graduated from USC at 22, uh, I worked every summer in construction. And so the kids that I would beat in May would kill me by the, the end of August because they'd played golf all summer. The most tournaments I ever played in the summertime were three. And I think that's one reason when I came out on tour and luckily, thank God, there was no qualifying school in 64. I simply sent my money in and 
played the Almanin Open and then the Cajun Classic down in Lafayette, Louisiana, which is important because if you made the cut, which I did, uh, you'd get in the LA Open, the closest one to our town, uh, San Bernardino. And so I came out, and I don't think anybody knew who in the heck I was. It wasn't until my junior year of college that uh, I thought I could see a future that I might be able to play. Uh, not, I just, I, I have tremendous drive. And when I hurt my back at 15, I lost whatever yardage I had. I mean, I was, Bruce, you know, he'd dock at 30, 40 yards by me. And uh, I had to, I had to just play my own game and not, and realize that I had shortcomings, but if I had a good mental game and a good short game, I was going to be all right. But uh, Guy Berger was my idol. He followed me. He was ahead of me at USC. He graduated in 59. When I graduated from high school, he was four years ahead of me. And uh, I kind of modeled myself after him. If he was with Munsing where I was or Spalding or whatever. And uh, so I had some good mentors out there. And uh, they, they, they took care of me. So who was most instrumental in shaping your game? I assume it was your father at a young age, huh? No, it was very definitely my dad. Uh, he was... It was it was interesting. In fact, on the wall behind me, you won't see it right here, but he had a picture of him having an exhibition with Walter Hagen in 1936. Uh, my dad was a really good player. I shot 164 here at Arrowhead. He shot 463s. Um, he just he he was a really good player, but there was no place to play in the 30s. Not when he had a wife, and you know when I, I was born and kids and 41 and everything else. So, dad dad actually went left. He kept his pro card, but he opened a sporting goods store, and uh, which was a dream for any kid to have your dad on a sporting goods store from putting a bowling ball through the glass front door or a highlight ball through the window. I mean, I, I raised havoc in the sporting goods store, and but I, I kind of liked all different sports, enjoyed it. So when did your game really develop? I, it, it got really good toward the senior tour. And Bruce is going to laugh at this, but I did. I did. I hit my peak at the, on the senior tour. I, Kathy got me in stretching, and I this Adrian Crook, a guy that worked with the Olympic athlete uh, Karch Karai, who in fact is the volleyball coach right now over in in, in uh, Japan and the Olympic Games. Uh, he was one of the ones that worked with this guy, and I got so limber for me, it was unbelievable, and. Uh, then and Ronnie after my dad died in '83, Ronnie at 15 started coaching my younger son. And uh, by the time I hit the senior tour, I could flat play. I mean, I remember I almost pulled it off two weeks in a row at Park City in Seattle, where I won by 10 uh, two weeks in a row. If Dale Douglas hadn't have jumped me in Seattle on 17 and made a birdie <laughs> when I made a double, but uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I I survived on the regular tour. I said, mentioned before that Guyberger was one of my mentors or, you know, tried to show me the ropes and everything. Uh, but he would take two weeks off and two weeks on. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll try that. Well, Guyberger's swing was such he could have taken two months off and come back and still played. If I took a week off, it took me a week to get back to where I was. If I took two weeks off, it probably took me a month to get back. So consequently, I played a ton of tournaments and because I, you know, I love to hunt and fish and garden and do other stuff. So I'm not the most diligent practice and practicer and my, and my back wouldn't allow me to do that. So I had to, you know, kind of forge my game and it was a never ending process really.
Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me. One in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Panda and Shepard, as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross? Bruce, why don't you share the story that you've shared about Hogan and what he said about getting away from the game for a day or so? Yeah, well, that's uh, David is right. You know, uh, Hogan always said to me, I said to him one day, Dave, uh, I, I think we were playing a practice round in Houston, and he's and I said to him, "So, Mister Hogan, how many how many days a year do you take off?" And he looked at me like I'd handed him a snake, and he said, "Days off." He said, "I I hope you realize that if you take one day off, it takes you another day to get back to where you were the day before. So taking days off doesn't work. You got to hit balls every day." So. Hmm. You, well, were, but that, you followed in his footsteps. Well, well, I, I did to a certain extent, but with my back, I mean, I literally, and that's when I teach people, Bruce, with the with the putting and short game. I ask them what their hobbies are, and if you know, you, you well know, uh, Jack Nicholas was the best we played against. Yep. And now you got Tiger, okay? And I love listening to Brandel Chambly talking about this swing and that swing and comparing them, and I'm going, it's all between their ears. I mean, I don't care what swing they're using. I mean, Doug Sanders got by with what he had. Absolutely. You know, there's all different ways to do it. There's no particular way. But if you don't have a good mental game, and that's why I ask them what their hobbies are, because I will take, I'll take a couple of months off in the fall, and, and it just rejuvenates me. I yeah. can be sitting on top of a mountaintop, or I can be duck hunting or whatever I'm doing, and my mind will go, you know, in March, you know, if I'd have done this instead of doing that. But when you're in the heat of the moment, you can't see that. You can't see right in front of yourself. Yeah. And so I, there's a fine line. I mean, with my bad back, a long putting practice session for me was 20 minutes. I mean, I would think about what I did wrong or what I wanted to work on. and I'd get out there and do it, and then I'd, I'd be gone. I mean, it's just it's, it's what I had to do because of my physical limitations. So let us in on a secret then. What, What's uh, that? What were your what were your things that you worked on when you you know why you became such a very good putter? I think putting is the simplest part of the game. I I don't think it relates at all to the rest of the game. Uh, in fact, when you're working with people, uh, the first thing I do is have them sign their signature for me, uh, and so they sign Bruce Devlin. They sign it, and now I say, okay, it took you about three seconds to do that. And, okay, now I want you to take 20 seconds, but I want you to duplicate that first signature. I want the B to be the same height, the same width, you know, so on and so forth. And they won't be able to do the first letter. And I say, okay, now, which one's the best? And they say, well, it's the first one. I said, why? And they go, well, I guess I'm not thinking. So I say, well, that's the first word you learn. You don't try. <laughs> you, you, have, you have to visualize. I yeah. mean, you seriously have to. So... Then we get on the green, and where most people's errors are in putting is they have no clue how to read a green, and they have no clue how to have a routine that just lets them get into it. And 
I have always I have always had an extremely fast routine because I figured how many people in the world didn't care if I missed or made the next putt. And so there is no wasted motion or time. I mean, my second major congressional on the 15-footer that I had to make to keep out of a playoff there with, with Floyd in January, uh, I, I from the time I put the coin down to the ball being struck was 14 seconds. Yeah, I know. I watched it. It was quick, boy. Really it's quick. just oh it's it's either going to go in or it's not going to go in. So what I started the conversation answering your question is the fact that I ask people what's their direction hand and they will I'll, I'll say tell me you got a direction hand and a feel hand it can be the same and they'll automatically if they're right handed say well the feel's right handed I said yep you're right okay now the question is which is your direction hand and if they tell me it's their right hand then they got trouble they seriously got trouble and. Because I said, okay, now what's your left doing? Well, left's not doing anything, okay? So I was taught that my left hand in low chip shots and putting, the left hand's the dominant hand. And you tend, like a Steve Stricker, you tend to stand fairly close to the ball unless you have an eye problem like Bob Murphy and you move the ball away from you or something. Again, everybody's different. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to be pretty much on top of the ball. So the left hand, and I haven't practiced with just their left hand. And... Like working with Tiger. Tiger adamantly thinks it's the right hand, and I he's probably one of the greatest putters I've ever seen, especially if you're on the 18th at, at Orlando there at Palmer's course, and he has a highlight film for 100 people wouldn't be able to do what he's done. And, <laughs> True. You know, he's made all these left or right putts that are almost impossible to make, and he made them dead center, and he believes the right hand, but there's no flip to it. And we see, we see all these different grips now where you you got the saw grip and you got the left hand low and it it you know it's very few people are like speeth that go left hand low and then can still keep the left hand going i know what they're trying to do but they can't accomplish it mm-hmm. so for me it's a long answer to your question but i i firmly believe the reason most people can't putt is the ball's too far away from them and they're rotating the putter and the right hand's flipping and when i get through putting my dad always taught me he wanted the back of my left hand to go to the hole and that there's the, the butt of the club stays vertical. It doesn't point back toward your belly button. Because if you do, and you'll hear the announcer say it, they're going to say, oh, he really released that putter. That was great. And I'm going, I no more want to release a putter than I can fly. <laughs> because then I can't control the speed. So the, the ter- first word I told you I don't want him to use is try – the second yeah. word I don't want them to use is hit. I want them to roll the ball. Yeah. And yet you see people that try to smash the ball in the hole. They ch- Mickelson loves to do this. He gets two or three feet, four feet, and he's going to ram it in, which is all fine and good. Do you miss one? And it's, you know, it's, it's not as hard as it's supposed to be. I've made a lot of money trying to teach people how to putt, and that, that's been more satisfying to me than the days I played because of the record of the people we've worked with have been unbelievable. The yeah. success we've gotten. Well, that was the reason why I asked that question. I wanted to know what you know, because that's that's you you recognized throughout the game as a wonderful teacher of the putting format. So, thank you for your answer, David. That was great. Yeah, I'll, let me add just one quick note to that. Is the fact the other thing my dad told me, which if people think about it, makes a lot of sense. When I get into the ball and I don't take a practice stroke unless I do it from behind the ball, I don't. But like Annika had to. She had to be looking down the line, looking at the hole. makes Because she had to have a practice stroke. But then when she walked into the ball, she just walks right into it. Well, my dad, 
when I when I put the putter down and I look at the hole and I'm setting my feet, I'm looking at the exact spot. It's coming in at 4 o'clock or 8 o'clock or 6 o'clock on a clock, whatever it might be. But then I come back, and I come back to an imaginary spot, and I ask people, where, how far out do you think I pick a spot? And they get apex of the break, third of the way to the hole, all these different things, and the answer is one inch. And it's the, probably the best tip I ever got from my dad because he said, I want you to give me one inch of the putter going through the ball without any reaction to touching it. So you're not recoiling back or like most people tend to come up on it. They come up and now make the ball bounce and they don't get the roll that I get. Very good. Yeah, it makes sense. It takes me back to a conversation we had with Steve Elkington a lot long ago. He says uh, he worked with somebody, it might have been Dave Pels, I don't know, but they they put a laser on him and they measured how well he aimed. And his Mm -hmm. aiming at 5 feet, 10 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet was absolutely terrible. And he got thinking about it. He says, wait a minute, put the, put, the, put the laser back on. Measure me at one inch. And he was dead nuts on. And so that's what he adopted. Hmm. Right. Was he be curious? Do you remember if he was left or right with the laser? Probably left, I'd bet. Well, I, I would hope so. I'm, I'm, I am never dead on. I am slightly left because I'm not letting my, my left hand break down. My left hand, in fact, I'll put a T in the middle of the hole with somebody from four feet, and I say, okay, this is a dead straight butt. Where are you going to aim? I said, I'm not going to aim at that T. Do you think I'm aiming to the right of it or to the left? And three out of four are going to say that you'll aim slightly right. And I said, no, I'm going to aim slightly left, because then my left hand can't possibly break down. There you and, go. And you know what I'm saying? Great tip. Great tip, Dave. Yeah, let me ask a selfish question from a guy that's, used a long putter for nearly 30 years. Uh, what do you do different or teach differently to people that are using a long putter in terms of technique? Um, try to get them in a short one. Uh, <laughs> That's not going to happen to my age. I figured that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, what you try to do, and I guess one of the greatest examples of somebody we helped was Kucher, who and you normally I get the 180 at the 200 ranked putter, let's say J.B. Holmes or somebody. Well, here's Kucher, who was leading money winner in the year he came to us, and he was fifth in putting, but he used left hand low, and he would flip it. And so I said to him, we're at the vintage, and I had both boys with me, and I said, well, what's your direction hand? And I figured, I know he put the left hand down, low, left hand low, and I said, is your, what's your direction hand? He said, left. I said, really? Make me a stroke. Well, he made this one-handed stroke with the left hand, and he didn't break down at all. And he had this watch band, white watch band. And I said, okay, I want you to put your that, that watch band on the club, and I don't want it to come off. I want you to get whatever forward press you need, but just keep it there. And so that's where he's gone to this longer he went from no degrees aloft to almost eight, you know, and he had it up underneath his arm, all these different things. But he did get where the left hand goes. Okay, if you're using a left hand, you're using a long putter, and I work with longer some. Uh, cost me a win at Houston when he killed me, and I finished third. And I just, you know, he made everything. Uh, that was his last lesson. The, the, yeah. hard, the hard part, again, and that gets, the only problem I have with the long putters is usually they're extremely heavy. And it's hard to get much feel with them that you can get them rocking and you can you can have them go well. And, you know, it, it's whatever whatever works. That's the one thing I don't understand. I didn't understand is that, you know, with the long putter, 
you can you have a terrible time in the wind. At least the guys I played with against. I'd watch Liskey and I watched uh, Orville Moody and then some of the other guys that use the Refram and some of the others. Uh, it's it's just just something you have to do. And, and if, if that feels comfortable, yeah, that's what you have to do. It's just uh, again you're gonna you're gonna stand fairly close to it. Most of the really successful ones they're going to be close to it, which to me is a great way to go. It, yeah. it, it you know I, I have no problem with what somebody comes because I'm. There is no if if you show me a teacher that's going to teach somebody a method and tell everybody is to do this, you're going to help somebody and screw up ten people while you're helping one guy. Gotcha. You know, I th- I think our job as a teacher is to make that person comfortable with what we're what as long as they walk out and hey, that really feels good. This is my stroke, and that's that's where you got to get to. That's like trying to swing the golf club like Ben Hogan. Can't <laughs> do it. No, nope, never have to worry about that. Yeah. No. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to this before we're done today, but uh, let me rephrase my original question uh, in terms of the development of your game. So as a young man, when did your game develop to a point where you thought you'd really uh, do something seriously with it? Probably, I would guess, when I was, when, when I was playing at USC and I won the, I won the Pac-10. Uh, prior, it was interesting because when I was 17, my dad let me play. Actually, I got to play the first time I played three tournaments. The first term was the National Hirsch Tournament, uh, where they had 13 different. They'd take two people from every one of the sects where they had their newspapers, and I our qualifying was at Riviera, and I went down to Riviera, and they had like a hundred people trying for the 32 spots, and I made a 10 on the first hole at Riviera, and shot 75 and qualified, and nobody took me past the 15th hole. And I went to, I qualified myself and Tim Happ, who finished second to me, to go to Albany, New York, Wolford Truce Country Club, where Kermit Zarley was there. And there were some names that I knew and everything. Um, and I shot, there were 26 players. I was 25th after the first round with an 81. And three rounds later, I finished second. And I went to the, I went to the quarterfinals of the National Junior at Stanford University um, later that summer. And I, I got to realize that, you know, I could play with these guys. My swing didn't look like anybody else's. And so consequently, after four years at SC, you know, my dad, I had to come back. I had eight. I was eight units shy of graduating. So I came back and got my eight units because so, they weren't going to let me turn pro unless I graduated. And so I met Kathy just prior to my last semester at USC. And uh, we were married. Well, I went out. The, the first two tournaments, I said the Almond and Open where I finished 10th. First tournament I played in, made over $2,000. I thought, man, this is going to be a killing. And I, <laughs> what I didn't realize, I think I averaged eight greens around, and <laughs> and I averaged about 24 putts around, right? And uh, ran right into Howie Johnson in the last round. Took him two holes to start needing. Now, what do you do when you're doing this and the, you know, he's trying to needle me? And I said, Howie, as bad as you're putting, just – Good luck to you. I'm just trying to learn this game, and you know, I, 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 I was learning. I was learning learning things that I never had to put up with before. But uh, I just had a belief in myself. My goal was I wanted to. I, I wanted to be my own boss. I didn't want to have to wear a coat and tie. And in Kathy, I found the perfect partner that we could. We traveled, and so we started out. Just got we. We, I was at Alma, I was at the second term. I said in Lafayette, Louisiana, freezing cold, sitting in a Clifton cafeteria. Spicy food had nailed me. I wasn't feeling good, but I'd made the cut. 
And I called her. I said, we're not waiting till next summer to get married because I'm, if I'm going to be miserable, we're going to do this together because I'm, <laughs> I'm not enjoying this. And, uh, so we got married February 27th and our life basically started. And it was, I mean, I was an instant success. I think the first year I made 5,000 and spent seven. My sponsorship, three different people put in $2,000 a piece. So I had 6,000 to work with. And the next year I had a great year. I made 8,000 and spent 10. And then the following year, thanks to Bruce inviting me to come play Colonial, which I almost didn't come because I had a, I had a house rented in Hot Springs, Arkansas, because when we didn't get in these tournaments, I'd go either to Country Club in North Carolina or I'd go to Hot Springs, Arkansas, somewhere I could fish. And my dad convinced me I really need to go to this. This is really a special tournament. And I didn't know Colonial from the Western Open. I didn't know anything about it. But uh, Guyberger played me practice round with me, and uh, that was that was eye opening. I shot. I had Ken still playing with me, and talk about a cheerleader. I mean, he was unbelievable. I mean, oh, I had uh, unbelievable. He 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 remembers Devil. He remembered what the temperature was the day we played, who we played with. <laughs> Hell, I can't remember any of that, you know. But I uh. I shot the sixty five sixty six. And Hogan went by me in the locker room on on Friday, never said a word. And I get paired on Saturday with uh, Gardner Dickinson. And I wouldn't interesting. say... Interesting. <laughs> yes, it was very interesting. Okay, Gardner didn't really like younger guys. and Or foreigners. Yeah. And so it was so funny because I got out there and after, after two holes, I had like an eight-shot lead. And when we were on the 16th tee box, everybody else is finished, and we had a rain delay. Now, I don't know how many penalties they'd give now for slow play, but Gardner was just doing everything. Yeah. And I shoot 74, and I'm sitting in front of my locker on that Saturday Saturday afternoon, and I hear this voice saying, where's Dave Stockton's locker? Well, around the corner walks Mr. Hogan. And I come jumping up, shake hands with him and everything. He said, Dave, now he's in third place. Luckily for me, he's playing with Weisskopf now because Weisskopf and I are tied. I've blown this eight shots. And he just turned and he said, you're playing really good. I know you expected me to say something yesterday, but you, you got all the adulation and everything you should get. And he said, but uh, I just want to let you know you've gotten your bad round out of the way. You can win this thing. Nice, so huh? totally under, yeah, just such a classy maneuver. And, you know, I mean, he started the tournament eagling the first hole, which is one more eagle than I've ever made at Colonial, but... Uh, he, it, it really, it's been an inspiration for me because, you know, I, every year, as you well know, you go up there and look at his trophy room and you go through all this stuff. And now they could, they got the plaques on the wall. And my son, David was also a champion's choice like I am, but, uh, and his proudest moment is standing between Ben Hogan, but he and I are standing on either side of Ben Hogan and Ben Hogan assigned the picture to David jr. And, uh, uh, just a lot of memories. And so it helped me. It really helped me to win on that golf course because I didn't realize how great a golf course it was. Mm-hmm. Guyberger absolutely was flabbergasted because he had a terrible record there until he realized if I won on it, then maybe he better adjust how he was playing it. And, uh, of course, he's one that he won you Colonial. He won the players there. Yeah. So yeah. he got back at me. I'll provide a little context for our listeners. We got Dave Stockton talking about his first win at Colonial National Invitational Colonial Country Club. And, and both of you have alluded to this champion's choice uh, 
uh, thing. Bruce, why don't you explain for our listeners what that's all about? Yeah, um, the organization sends out a letter to everybody that's won a golf tournament, and there's a list of players that they put together, uh, players that have shown some success and in various areas as far as professional golf is concerned, and, and the players get to choose three guys. They choose a one, a two, and a three, and they they get three points for one, two points for two, and one point for three, and then they add all the champions' choice picks up, and uh, David in 1967 received the, I think he received the top points actually, Dave, and they invite three players, uh, but yeah, he's he is still today the only champions' pick that has ever won the first year he played. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know where the trouble was. I came back <laughs> the sec. I came back the second year, and I had no idea that there was a river alongside the eleventh hole. Oh, really? I, I'd been hitting driver <laughs> off the ground, going at the green. Had never dawned on me. I never went over to solid trees. And then since since I was the champion in '67, you remember that's when they tore the thing up. Yeah, remember because you could stand on the the fifty and you could see the green after they knocked most of those trees down. And exactly. that was terrifying, and they changed the eighth. The eighth right. was probably one of the greatest little par threes ever. Tough. Uh, yeah, the green wasn't big enough to hit a sandwich to, and I'm hitting a three iron at it. Yeah. But, uh, no, it, it was unbelievable. But I did not know where the trouble was. I didn't have nearly the, the success the second year going back, I guarantee you. And Bruce was on that uh, Champions Choice selection panel because he was the defending champion. He had won uh, the year before. That's yep. right, I had, yeah. So it was... Uh... It was great. We talked to Charlie Cootie a few weeks ago, and uh, uh, we asked him about the Colonial because we thought as a Texan, uh, that's one he really would have wanted to win. And he said, you know, I, I played that for 25 straight years, and if there's one tournament I would have loved to have won, it would have been the Colonial. Yeah, I can imagine. And it, Anything anybody says about that, it, it is one of the truly gems of a golf course that we, we played on. I, I you know... This day and age, with the slash and gouge and hit it a thousand miles, that's wonderful. But there were enough trees around, especially in '66 and '7 when you and I won before they changed it. You could seriously get and You got the wrong side of these trees. You were having a hard time getting it back in play. I mean, it was yeah. yeah you had to know where it was going for the most part. So you're glad you didn't go to Arkansas. I it's it turned out really good. Yeah, I stayed in the Clifton Clifton house. Yeah. Clayton House, Clayton House. Clayton House. Yeah, played a lot right of bridge. Right there in university. Yeah, university, yeah, no longer yeah. there. But uh, it, uh, I don't know, it just, to me, I, I loved it. I mean, that became my, you know, my my go-to place in Texas. And it the, the interesting thing, and that's a lot on the record, is the one thing I'm really proud of, my record, is some of the golf courses that I've won on because I'm, I'm known as a short hitter, but yet there have been some really good successes on some really long golf courses. And uh, Colonial's right up there at the top of the list. I'll back up for our listeners just a little bit. Uh, we're talking about Dave's first win in 1967. Uh, he mentioned turning professional in, in 1964 and, and had a marvelous record on the PGA Tour with 10 uh, wins on the, on the regular tour, 14 on the senior PGA Tour, which we'll talk about later, 25 total professional wins. And uh, I think we want to get to some of those wins. What were you going to say, Bruce? I don't remember. <laughs> we'll that up. I knew I was enjoying this interview. 
<laughs> uh, that's why we get to edit this kind of stuff out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about win number two, which was uh, uh, the Cleveland Open in 1968. Cleveland Open Invitational at Lakewood Country Club by two over Bob Dixon. Okay, well, let's back up one because that wasn't number two. All right, well, I missed one then. Yeah, because you're trying to figure out how I got 14 on the senior tour and 10 on the regular, but I totaled 25, and that's because in – October or September of, of 67, I won the Hagen Hague with Laurie Hammer at La Costa, uh, yeah. which was an op, an, an all in a shot event, play, paying official money yeah. and everything else. And they took it away from me in the early 80s. And now they play an event on the tour in New Orleans where they're playing, you know, and they count it. Yeah. True. You know, so. So so you go to number three happens to be Cleveland, and which is probably the be, one of the best stories ever because Kathy is expecting David. First of all, at Colonial, we decide we can have children. So now we're in, you know, we're in, we're trying to have children, and David's going to come July thirty first. Well, he's he's not coming when he should, and I missed a couple of cuts, and I'm going to play the Cleveland Open because the doctor says the baby's is late, but he's 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 not coming within the next week or so. So I, I arrive at Cleveland on the which was my summer home because John Plum was the Spalding salesman when I was on tour and when we'd leave in our car we had no eastern home and they lived at Lake Lucerne which was east of Cleveland out near Chagrin Falls and Kirkland Country Club and Canterbury where I was going to win the Senior U.S. Open in '96 but that was our summer home well I show up there really mad because I've missed two cuts in a row and I get there Friday and. They have this new house above the lake, and it had about 50 yards of grass, and they had about 15 or 20 yards of solid trees, and you couldn't see the lake. So I, I'm just, I got to get rid of all this anxiety. So I get out there, I spend three days wiping out the trees and the brush. So now they got the beautiful view of this lake from their house. Then I'm driving over on Monday to Lakewood Country Club on the west side of Cleveland, and I cannot put my fingers around the steering wheel. I mean, it will not, they won't, they won't close. I've just, that's how hard I've been working for three days. <laughs> I feel great, right? But I can't play. So I was just back there a month ago, which was their 100th anniversary at Lakewood. And my caddy, who caddied for me in 68, was there. And how neat. Yeah. And so I'm now I'm asking questions because I don't remember the course. I don't remember what I shot. I didn't remember anything. I said, did I play on Monday? He said, oh, no, you couldn't even, you couldn't even hold a club. I said, well, what did we do Tuesday? He said, well, we tried to play, and we played five holes, but it was still so sore you walked off. And we played the Pro-Am on Wednesday, got in 18 holes, and then shot 69, 68, 67, 72, and one by two over Dixon, all of which I remember nothing. And he says, don't you remember the eighth hole, I believe is what he said. It's par three, about 150 yards. I said, no, no, I don't remember anything. He says, you knocked it inside of five feet, four straight days, and made four twos on that hole. And I go, well, you'd think I would remember that, right? <laughs> so, so at any rate, I, I fly home afterwards, winning the tournament, which was, that was, you know, now that validated Colonial, because that was an individual event. It wasn't a team event like the Hagen Hague was. Come home. Kathy and I go to the doctor, and the doctor says, I don't know what this baby's doing, but it's not coming, so... I had entered Milwaukee, and I flew out to Milwaukee in room with Guyberger, and we're playing North Shore, and it was the first two hundred thousand dollar tournament on our on our tour ever against the British Open. Sam Snead was playing; he's going to end up finishing second to me by four. But uh, 
I mean, I won back-to-backs, and now I fly home after winning Cleveland and Milwaukee, and I told the doctor, I said, can you keep keep this up? Kathy, of course, is really picked at me. She's happy I'm winning, but she's not she's not being enjoying being nine and a half months pregnant. No. So uh so David came. Everything everything was fine, but it was uh it was an interesting time. I, I enjoy myself much more when the family could be out there with me. Yeah, it's a lot lot easier, isn't it? Yes, it is. Bruce, didn't you bring your family across about that time? Yeah, we we did a little bit the same as what David did. Uh Actually, he traveled a little better than me. Uh, Gloria and I traveled with two kids in a Greyhound bus for two and a half months. Which You're kidding. No, which wasn't much fun. <laughs> oh, my no. God. Uh, yeah. Why? We, Why? Well, we didn't have it. We couldn't afford to buy a car, so we were traveling around in the Greyhound. Oh, my God. Okay. You didn't know that, huh? No. No, yeah. I didn't. I never, I've never been on a Greyhound bus, and I don't think I missed much, I don't think. No, you haven't missed anything. And, and you know something, David, I'll tell you about how this is how women think. I said, to, you know, this has been mentioned a time or two, and I've always said, man, I'll tell you, that was just so, da- so tough, I thought. And then Gloria would say, well, I'd do it again with two kids and cloth wow. diapers. And, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh my oh, gosh. It was, oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's, you know, that's Kathy the same way. She goes... Well, when we got on the the senior tour, of course, we're flying net jet and stuff, and, and you know we could we could do it. And I'm it was she kept saying, you know, I really miss our road trips. And all I remember, all I remember is it's the only time we fought because <laughs> I'm a guy, so I know I know where I'm going. Problem is, I don't. Right? So my wife, she's got to be diplomatic, you know. Before GPS, I can remember. <laughs> I can remember, I think it was in Arkansas, somewhere around that. We're driving. We've gone into a McDonald's, and we got bought breakfast or lunch, I guess, because we had chocolate milkshakes. And she had the glove box open, and we had both both milkshakes on the on the little tray right in front of her. And this dog ran right in front of me, and I slammed on the brakes, and both our milkshakes go into our our <laughs> our you know glove box. Which is filled with our most prized possession, which happened to be blue chip stamps and S and H green stamps, because you get all sorts of free pans and stuff. You know, you're saving this stuff, yeah. right? right? Oh my God, we spent the whole night trying to clean these things up, but we could still get our money's worth out of all this stuff we had in there. No, it was the road. Tri- the road trips weren't weren't too. I, I look at the, the like the the vans they have now, and and yeah. and the mobile homes they can travel in. I mean, that would have been spectacular. But yeah. uh, it wasn't available to us at that time. Now imagine all the young kids listening to this. They have no idea what we're talking about with all these no. green stamps, S&H green no. stamps. And- no. Wouldn't have a clue. I thought you were going to say the, the milkshakes uh, ruined all your maps because this was way before GPS. Oh, God. We used to go get – what What was it? you go to the, the automobile club and they'd oh, the give AAA. you triptych. Triple trip, A. Triple A. Triptychs. Yeah, or Triple A. Yeah. yeah. Rand McNally. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. Don't have to worry about that now. So who did you guys travel with in your caravans back then? Uh, actually, a lot with the Lotzes. Uh, Bob Lund started with us. Uh, Guyberger, of course, like I say, he played two weeks and was gone two weeks, so there wasn't much traveling with him. Um, but uh, we we wouldn't caravan necessarily. We, we'd know which hotels were motels we were going to, motels in the most part. Uh 
and then that was the <laughs> those brings back. Do you remember the Azalean Open? Azalea Open? Yeah, I do. I can remember the Barbie apartments out on the beach, and uh, it was the greatest week. I mean, it was like $75 for the whole week, and you had to pay $15 extra to get a TV. And we built the coolest par three course down on their sand dunes with with plastic from the dry cleaning. We had water holes. We had all sorts of stuff. And my short game got really sharp there. But it, you know, it, I've always, I don't know about Bruce, I've always liked the smaller cities. I, and of course, I, I played when I won the first PGA in 70, uh, which led me to play two British Opens in 71 and in 72. Um, but I didn't like it because I, I couldn't take my kids with me. And it got to the point that, you know, all mine with my bad back. I mean, of my 25 wins, 22 of them are in July and August because that's when it gets hot and that's when I get feeling good. Yeah. And and so I couldn't see taking the time to go overseas because I couldn't take my kids or I wouldn't take them. You had to either be there a week earlier or a week afterward. Um, Too expensive, too. Yeah, exactly. No, you couldn't because you knew you weren't going to make enough to cover it. So it 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 to me, and that's why I enjoyed the Milwaukee's and I enjoyed the Quad Cities and I enjoyed uh, a lot of the smaller towns that the kids could get. We played baseball games in the afternoon. I mean, it was it was great fun, and it was a it was a good way for your kids to get to get together because the wives could get together around the pool and share watching the watching the their kids and everything. In fact, you get that kids back to Colonial. That's the first tournament that ever had a babysitting service. For our wives, wives could they'd have a place in the clubhouse where they would watch the kids and the kid, and it meant so much to the wives to get out to walk nine holes and get out there. It just wasn't, you know, they have all that now, but we didn't have anything like that. Colonial, I think, was the first to let uh, have a dining room for the players and somebody to look after the kids. They they were always out in front of everyone. They were, yeah, dry cleaning service for you. I mean, everything Correct. these kids take for granted, and they. They were just, they were miles ahead of everybody else. Well, you guys mentioned uh, in terms of traveling to places like the British Open, where it was, uh, some guys couldn't afford to go over there because of time and money. Uh, I'll take you back to the GMO, Dave, in 1968, because that was the first one. And it did, as you said, it ran up right against the British Open. And um, uh, it wasn't a difficult choice, probably, for players of your era when you consider the the costs in terms of travel, time, and money to get over to the British Open. But uh, the GMO that year had a purse of 200000 uh, when you won. And by the way, that was the second highest purse on the PGA Tour that year. Uh, when you won, you won $40,000 for first prize. You guys remember what the winner's share was in the British Open that same week? I have no idea. Uh, not, not that much, I know that. I'd say six or six or ten or something. You won $40,000, the winner at the British Open, uh, which happened to be at uh, Carnoustie, I think, that year, 3,000 pounds, $7,200. Yep. Yeah. 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 Good good pick, David. Uh, Yeah. 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 (laughs) Uh, And the other problem was uh, they played the PGA Championship the following week. Right. So a lot of guys... You know, probably couldn't even gotten back for it. Now, that was the last time, I think, that the, the PGA and the British Open were played back-to-back. But uh, the other issue that you guys ran into was the Open uh, didn't really count in official PGA stats or dollars until 1995. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, it, and, and 
you know, when we came up, I mean, it, you know, Arnold obviously and Jack were the one that made it where they would, you know, they go over there, make the effort. Of course, they could fly their own plane or do whatever they were doing to get over there. And um, it just it wasn't it wasn't a practical thing. I mean, that's just you're right. Uh, it's because it was it was tough. I mean, it, it was it's it's hard golf. It's an interesting golf. I like the I like the link style. I mean, that was phenomenal. The two I played, I played at Muirfield and Burkdale. And it was phenomenal, but it just it wasn't home, and I couldn't bring my my entourage, so to speak, Kathy and both boys, with me, and it it, it was just not it wasn't fun, and it you know, and and it was impractical. Now it's not. In fact, now the way they have it scheduled is great for the for the Open to be the last sure. one now, and I think the PGA is in a better spot rather than being really hot in the summertime like it was in August. It's much better to have it. Let the British be the last one before they get into the playoffs. So, if you were if you were in your prime playing today, uh, would you probably go over there and play in the in the Open Championship more often? Not necessarily. Not if I had young kids. I mean, it's just I had too much fun because I, you know, when I'm when I'm out there by myself and Kathy can come out every couple three weeks or something, uh, I, you know. I still wouldn't want to sacrifice my kids and I don't want to take them over there. It'd be a good experience for them to go and, and see it. But of course we've gone the other way cause we've done a lot of exhibitions over there around the Ryder cups and stuff. Um, right. we've, we've taken the kids over there and done corporate outings with Merrill Lynch and American airlines and stuff. Uh, and they've had a ch- opportunity to see it and get a feel for it. But, uh, I'm sure if I was in the top 10 or top 20, like I was there for a while on the regular tour back in the sixties and seventies, uh, yeah, I would play, but it it it, it was a hardship, and uh, I got to the point where I enjoyed, you know, I was doing corporate outings as well as playing, and I just couldn't see taking that time and effort. So I would probably play now if I was a top twenty player, sure, absolutely, but uh, I w- I wouldn't. It just didn't work for me. We'll come back to the major championships in a bit, but uh, just continuing on with some of your other regular PGA Tour wins, you won in 1971 at the Massachusetts Classic that was at Pleasant Valley Country Club by one shot over Raymond Floyd. What are your memories of that event? Uh, Mainly the year before when I had the lead the year before and fell going down the eighth hole. Stepped into like a gopher, uh, not a gopher hole, a, a groundhog hole or something and twisted my ankle and literally carried myself on eight and nine and realized I wasn't going to be able to continue and came back the next year with a desire to satisfy the wrong. It's kind of like what I did winning the LA open as you'll talk about later, uh, where I had the lead the prior year, but then got sick and, and couldn't finish. Um, I I've got a, I've got a long memory. And if I, if, if I feel like I deserve something, I'm going to go after it. And that's kind of what <laughs> happened at the, at Pleasant Valley. Cousin Gola was the owner up there at Pleasant Valley. And that was talk about a family place for us to go. They had, they right. had a wonderful dinner for us. You know, you'd have the kids out there and they'd have a clam and, and lobster bake and all this stuff. And you Pleasant Valley motor in and staying right there around the corner from the course. And, that to me, those are the tournaments that I remember because I know the kids. It's embedded in their mind what we did that week. You know, it, it it's a hilarious place. It was a great place to win. And Bruce, you must have had the family with you probably the following year when you won there. Yeah, well, uh, actually, I was there by myself that year. But uh, and as a matter of fact, I stayed with Cousin Gola that year, mm-hmm. the guy that owned the place. And, yep. 
Well, what a great thrill that was to stay with him and uh, and end up winning the golf tournament. But uh, yeah, it was a it was like David said, it was a fabulous place to to go. Uh, when I went back uh, years later, I always stayed at the uh, Pleasant Valley Inn there, right on right. The, right at the golf course. It was a lot of fun. How about how about the seventeenth hole? Do you ever worry about that tee shot? Uh Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a toughie, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, yeah. That that I think that was the scariest shot on the whole golf course. I, I do too. Absolutely. Yeah. So for our listeners that have never played the hole, tell us about that shot. What what was scary about it? Well, you're a little bit elevated, hitting trees left and right, and you just couldn't miss it left or right. As long as you hit it straight, there was no problem. But if you, there were a lot of trees, and it was a slight yeah. dog leg to the right, and it was just an uncomfortable hole. And you just come off playing a the fifteenth hole. You played up back up across a canyon, kind of like a back up part of the clubhouse where guys could drive right. the green. I couldn't. And then a yeah. par three that was downhill, and it's just it was a tough. You know, you're really close to finishing this thing off, and. It you had to hit a good tee shot on seventeen, and it it wasn't comfortable. I don't care for any, whoever it was; it was a hard hole to drive on. Absolutely. Well, at least you got to play a par five to finish, so that was yes, that was uh, better. One, and I one needed quite, that. One quite as hard. Right? No, it wasn't. So you mentioned your uh, uh, your like for Milwaukee as a town, and you came back there in nineteen seventy three, won the GMO again out at Tuckaway Country Club this time. Yeah, that was it. Was fun. The first time I'd won twice in the same town, two different courses. Uh, North Shore, obviously, in the north side, and this is the south side of it. Uh, but a really good golf course. Uh, just a parkland-like course. Uh, had a few holes with trees on it, especially early on the backside. But it it was uh, it, it was great. In other words, that that's again that was a baseball town for us to play with our kids and everything in the afternoon similar to like Hartford or something. And it just, it was a, it was a great spot to be. And, and interesting enough, a lot of people have won the Milwaukee open twice. Uh, I never, you know, I, after, after winning there, I, that was about the last time after age 76, I went back there, but uh, in seven, in uh, 73, it was, I hadn't won again. I hadn't won since 71. So it was good to get back and in the winner circle. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about your win at uh, Riviera you alluded to earlier, which was the L.A. Open. Uh, Glenn Campbell, I think, was the sponsor, wasn't he? Yes, in 74, Glenn Campbell, L.A. Open. I was I was fortunate enough to win there. Stadler was the low amateur, uh, so it was kind of an SC thing. But uh, that was interesting because I was playing against Snead. And uh, how it turned out is I had a, a two-shot lead going into 17, the par five, and how I got past him in two, I don't know. But... Uh, he had about a 120 yard shot and I had about a 110 yard shot and he hits this shot and he gets on the green. He's like 15 feet to the right of the hole or something. And or yeah, the right of the hole. And he, he walks past me and I'm kind of wondering what he's doing. Cause I'm blocked to my ball. I'm getting ready to hit. And he walks right by me and I'm thinking he's getting his divot. Well, he never stops walking. He walks all the way up on the green, marks his <laughs> ball and turns around and just looks at me. And as he's walking up there, I'm, I told my caddy, I said, you know, I'm going to hit this guy on national television. I mean, he's just obviously trying to needle me, right? And so he <laughs> he he just stood there, and I hit it just outside him, and I missed it, and he made it. So now I'm one shot ahead going to 18 at, at Riviera, which is another interesting finishing hole. Damn right. 
if you watch the winter this time, you had a pitching wedge. And yeah, I, we couldn't hit a pitching wedge in there. No, no, no. In that day, <laughs> that particular day, the wind was into us, which is highly unusual. It's usually a slight tailwind behind you. But I didn't want to go right because you got all the eucalyptus trees. And as I walk on the tee, Sam's on the right, so I go to the left. And I'm just looking to the left at the hill and just kind of getting my mind together on what I've got to do here. And all of a sudden, Sneeze right beside me he says, Son, he says, I know you didn't know this, but in 51, I buried the last two holes here to beat Ben Hogan. And I looked at him and I go, I was barely born, but that's fine. Congratulations. And I just turned around, right? So now, but I'm mad, right? I'm yeah. upset, you know, because I know what he's trying to do. And I pulled this thing, and they've got a plaque up there. And where the guy had a pitching wedge this time, I had 243 yards to the yeah. hole. And. Other than the fact I don't want to leave it in the bunker short of the green, short of the 60 yards short of the hole, and it's got out of bounds up the hill to the left and then a zillion people to the right, I had no place I didn't want to. I had all these places I didn't want to go, and I had a forward out until my caddy came back and told me that instead of having my usual 210 or whatever it was, I had 243. So the ball six inches below my feet, but sitting up, I could have hit a driver. I mean, it, the Kikui, it's just sitting right up on top. And I swing this three wood and I killed it. I've never hit it again. I've hit 20 or 30 shots. I've never hit the green, let alone hit it about 10 feet. But I hit this three wood 10 feet. And Sam is standing right beside. He's 65, 70 yards ahead of me. And he's standing by him. I told my case and I pulled my three wood. I said, move the sucker back. Get him away from me because I don't want to see him. So my caddy kind of herded him over to the side. And... I hit this thing, and luckily they didn't show it because I walked right up to him as soon as I hit it, and as soon as I saw it get over the trap. And I said, I guess Hogan didn't hit it that good, did he, Sam? And I just I put, my, I, put, I, I, put, I put my fist under his face, under his nose, and I said, I guess he didn't hit it that good that day, did he? And I walked off, right? So he knocks it on the green. He two puts, I hold it, and I walk up in the press tent, and I told him everything. I said exactly what happened. He blew a gasket. And when I told I saw him the very next week, I said, look, Sam, I said, you know exactly what you did. And I knew what you were trying to do, but, uh, you know. Didn't work. I, it didn't work, you know, sort of thing. So he and I never exchanged Christmas cards, but, I'm, you know, I understood where he was coming from. Great, yeah. great individual, by the way. Unbelievable. What a swing. Did that happen a lot out there? I mean, I've heard some stories from some of the guys. Uh... Absolutely. I mean, it yes, was, <laughs> there, it, but, but you understand that it was like my dad who never played because there weren't, there wasn't any money. You alluded to what the British Open paid. There was no money to play. So they'd play the side wagers and they'd do all this stuff. And they weren't exactly excited to have young guys come out. And I, yeah. I got along fine with everybody, but there were certain players. Gardner was one of them. Uh, there were others that were tough. Dan Sykes could be tough. Sam yep. Snead could be tough, but it was an era. They all came out and they did a lot of hustling. They did a lot of stuff. Well, it's like these kids now. I mean, they're all good friends for the most part. I mean, Kepkin and, and DeChambeau may be having a feud at the moment, but <laughs> for the most part, you're playing for so much money that you want to help the other person. And I always did. I always helped the other guys that I played with. I wanted them to play their best and then I wanted to beat them. Right. But it, you know, and I never played much money in practice rounds. I don't know whether you did, Devil, but I didn't because I, I could never figure out. Everybody's trying to hone their, their talents for for, you know, head to head play and all this stuff. But they never put the pins where they're going to be in the tournament. And and if you were 
like I am coming up, you played two Monday and Tuesday for your only practice rounds because you usually weren't in the pro am. And so I wanted to play to the part of the greens where they're going to put the pins so I could yeah. get a feel for it. And I whether you played for ten or twenty bucks, I didn't see where I got the advantage. I wanted to, I wanted to learn the golf course. But these other guys, I mean, from the different era, they acted totally different. And it's it's dramatically changed now. Yeah, well, you know, a little uh, little twenty dollar Nassau was uh, sort of nice back in the younger days. Yeah, see, I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't get into that. I was just, I was trying to learn the golf course, you know. I just, and that's why I would change. I mean, like Guyberg and I, we'd be out playing practice rounds or something. We were talking more about positioning and how it played, and you know, the different situations you're going to face. You know, you know that it just happened to be that's what I, the way I did it, the way I treated it, because yeah. I, I was trying to trying to learn as fast as I could. Well, I might also say that that wasn't the first year. That was after I'd played a golf course two or three times. It mm. felt like I knew it. So, uh, right. you know, just just keep the interest there with a $20 Nassau was... You know, you're right. I mean, like one I would definitely do a lot of betting on was Torrey Pines because I did not like Torrey you Pines the way I knew it, and I didn't like it because every time I played the South course, I kept going, well, why don't... Now that they've done it and redesigned it, I mean, why in the heck in the green or by the branker? Why are you know they just like they played yeah. away from everything, and I didn't, I did, I didn't see the challenge in it. So yeah, yeah. And I, there I would do some 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 gambling for sure. Let's uh, quickly uh, recount a couple other wins that you had on the regular PGA Tour. You you won at Quad Cities. You mentioned that before as another fun, small, fun Midwestern city that was at Crow Valley Country Club by one over Bruce, Bruce Fleischer. And who? And who's the other I don't one? Know. Was there another one? Oh, absolutely. Sam Sneed was leading the tournament, and I shot sixty. Again, I shot sixty-four, and Fleischer three-putted the eighteenth hole. Sam was he was really mad because this is the same year that I beat him in L.A. Yeah. And this yeah. is the last tournament he was going to lead on our tour. Not that we knew it, but yeah. you know that was the last tournament, and. He was sunk. I shot sixty four. I played unbelievable, and and then Flasher got up and only had about twenty five thirty footer, and he three putted. And Sam was so mad. He he wanted I think anybody to win but me, you know, <laughs> which I could understand. Yeah, yeah. So, right. yeah, probably. And then you're mentioning right and right after that because that was my best year on tour. The three wins, L.A. and the Quad Cities, yeah. and then I won the Sammy Davis Junior at Hartford, which was. The highlight again, Raymond Floyd. Raymond and I butted heads. A lot of us seem to play the same, you know, same course as well. Devil, you and I, we, we yeah. were for whatever the reason was. But the highlight of great of Hartford that was the first time a sitting president, President Ford, called called a, a pro that had won on the on the PGA Tour, yeah. and they were they were all fired up about that. And uh, that was a fun stop for you guys, wasn't it? I mean, it was just a very good, supportive town with the JCs running that event in Hartford. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Any any JC event that's been run, we really supported well, and they supported us well. I mean, it was it was like a lot like Mangola's up in Pleasant Valley. I mean, there there was nice dinners and stuff. In fact, a lot of us contributed our prize, a lot of our prize money back for their their children's home up there and stuff, and uh, some of their philanthropic efforts and uh i donated quite a bit of my my winnings there over a number of years just just because how they treated us there bruce you were runner-up uh the year before to billy casper i was yeah <laughs> I, don't, I i don't like those runner-ups though 
<laughs> right, David? Yeah, but again, Billy's nobody. You can't can't fault. Yeah. If you lose to Billy, that's a pretty good person to get get slipped by you. I got to tell you one quick story about Billy Casper. I played with him the last two rounds of the Western Open, and I think he ended up winning by six or seven shots, and I went back to the hotel that Saturday evening because we were playing 36 holes on Saturday. I went back to the hotel, and I said to Gloria, my wife, I said, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm in the right game because I played with a guy today that just, I mean, he hardly, I think he might have missed two shots in 36 holes or something, but uh, you're right. He was a hell of a player, Casper. Good, good guy, too. He was great. He should have been the big four and not the big three. He just yeah, had the, he was a great player. He had the wrong manager. I mean, yeah, really, really a good player. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway, it went smack down the fairway. Then it started to slice just a smidge off line. It headed for two, but it bounced off nine. My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay. Yes, it went straight down the middle, quite a way.